Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Aaliyah, and the weirdest place I've ever written, or the most memorable place I've ever written, sorry, Cameron, lost the wording, was a flower bed. So, there you go. Did you <laughs> lay down in the flower bed? Oh, of course. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. Uh, I'm Cameron, and the most memorable place I've ever written was actually on an airplane in the middle of a giant thunderstorm. There was just, like, lightning going on outside constantly, and it was extremely atmospheric. Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I'm Caitlin, and the most interesting place I've ever written, um, I've written in lots of places. I spend a lot of time in my car writing, like when my kids are doing stuff, I'll just sit out in the car and write. But I have a great place for people who are having a hard time getting like away from their houses to write. My friend Rebecca goes to a graveyard. She'll go and sit in between <laughs> the stones and write because nobody bothers her there. Ooh, that's a really good point. <laughs> that's really sneaky, but I like it. I mean, it's inspiring, too, probably. I believe that. Wait, have you written there? You just said your friend writes there. My friend does, and I'm boring, and so I had to come up with something cool, and so I stole it from Rebecca. (laughs) Okay, I gotcha. Um, I'm Kristen, and the most memorable place I've written is probably the ruins of Uxmal in Mexico. Wow. There are just some cool Mayan ruins. Just drop that off. I highly recommend them, but probably not for uh, writing. (laughs) (laughs) Howdy, I'm Darcy Little Badger, and both the most interesting and memorable place I've ridden is in the middle of the Sargasso Sea. I was on a two-week research cruise uh, studying plankton out there in the the gyre, so we had a lot of free time when we weren't doing plankton net toes, and I would just go up on the deck and write. That is so cool. Very cool. What is it that you research? Uh, so I have a PhD in oceanography, uh, but that was when I was an undergraduate studying geosciences. So I was studying a type of plankton, uh, cyanobacteria, called trichodesmium. Yeah, I'm both a writer and a scientist. That's so cool. <laughs> what were you studying about trichodesmium? Is that what you said? Yeah. So we were collecting some samples from the Sargasso Sea, and we were actually seeing how ocean acidification or pH changes might affect these samples from the field. Because a lot of work had been done on these, but it was all from the lab. You know, you'd Mm -hmm. grow these trichodesmium in the lab. And we wanted to know if there was any difference between the lab results and what we get in the middle of the ocean. Wow. And were there? So this was very preliminary. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) No, we did. No, this is, I love talking about plankton and don't get enough enough chances to do it. (laughs) Yeah, we, we did see... With these results and the results that had been published for lab, there there were a lot of similarities. But I have to check and see if, if that's been verified. It's been a while. That's really <laughs> that's so cool. cool. Thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so a big welcome to our special guest today, Darcy Little Badger, who, as you heard, is an earth scientist, writer, and fan of the weird, beautiful, and haunted. Her debut novel, Alatsue, will be out August 25th, so keep an eye out for that. Um, Darcy, can you tell us a little bit about your book? Oh, yes. It's a young adult fantasy mystery about a teenager named Ellie. Uh, she's 17 years old. She's lip on Apache. And she has this unique talent where she's able to wake up the ghosts of animals. So this is just animals, not humans. But it encompasses prehistoric animals as well as like dogs and mosquitoes and stuff. So she actually investigates the death of her cousin in a really creepy town called Willoughby. And am I allowed to read? Because 
a review just came out that summarized this in like the coolest way. And I wish that I had actually thought of summarizing my book yeah, like this. Of course. So <laughs> Don't can you I just read that? like, Please, tell us. it says in an alternate Texas where major cities have fairy ring transport centers and the university offers an invasive monster program. Ellie, a lip on Apache teenager, just wants to reincarnate pre- prehistoric fossils and teach her ghost dog new tricks. Then her cousin visits her in a dream, says the man named Abe Allerton murdered him and asks her to protect him's family from further harm. So that's the review from a book page that just came out. And I was like, oh, I wish I I'd described <laughs> my book like this earlier. That was very Is good. Is it too late to change the <laughs> jacket yeah, copy? My yeah. elevator pitch. Well, that sounds very yeah. exciting. It's so... Thank you. We all had access to the advanced review copy, and I just, I loved it. It was wonderful. Yeah, the world building is so fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Oh, thank you so much for reading. Yeah. We were very, very Privileged. happy to do it. <laughs> so, Darcy, I'm sure that being a scientist, a lot of perseverance comes in with that, you know, doing the research, um, collecting data. Um, so that's a perfect platform for what we wanted to talk to with you about today, which is perseverance from everything in the drafting stage through to the publication phase. Um, so I guess to get us started, how can a writer come back after taking a writing break? We all have these in our lives, whether they're planned or unplanned. At some point, we just stop writing, maybe for a little bit. Yeah, and I I've, I have taken some pretty long writing breaks. Usually those are just when I'm exhausted from work or some other things. And the way that I am able to get back into it or into the groove, is I just start reading a lot. And I don't know what it is, but when I'm reading something that I really love, it, it tends to just stir up inspiration in me. And then I just start writing. And I, I hear this actually works with lots of other people. You know, you read and that makes you want to write. It's really funny because I think a lot of times when there's a problem with writing, people prescribe reading as the answer and people just get really <laughs> tired of that. But it's so true. That works for me too. Well, I think if you read something that you really love, at least for me, I'm like, I want to write something that makes me feel like that. And then it makes me want to start on something. I personally like can't handle taking breaks because writing is the way that I'd survive having four children. <laughs> so... <laughs> If if I ever take breaks, then then my family like retakes all of the time I have fought for in order to be able to write. And so I'm not allowed to take breaks. So even when I can't write, because that totally happens, like whenever I have events or anything like that, my brain just goes to mush and I just put other things in that time. But I make sure I keep the appointment of like it's my work. And so I say, this is my job. I still take these hours, even if I sit in my room and read. With the <laughs> so, it helps me. <laughs> I really like using writing prompts. Like there's a website called Hit Record that often has challenges. So that's a place you can start. Or there are so many social media accounts with things that have writing prompts. But if I'm really stuck on coming up with my own idea or if I can't move forward in like a longer work that I'm working on, I'll look at a writing prompt and write something really short and see how I can twist it the most that I can. And it will get the right muscles going again. So that's something that works for me. I like that too. Do you ever write your own, like you get ideas and just like write them down and then use them as your own writing prompts? Because I just thought that's actually something that I do. Oh, really? Um, and that's another thing that helps. Yeah, like sometimes you just get like a really cool idea, but like have so much other stuff going on and have to return to it. So I have like a whole book of those. Oh, that's cool. And I guess, yeah, if I'm ever like, I need some ideas, that would probably be helpful. <laughs> Dude, I need to start doing that. <laughs> I actually do that too. If ever I have like a random concept, I'm, I have this, um, I do all of my notes in OneNote, like the Microsoft product thing. I'm not doing commercials for OneNote, I promise. But um, 
I just have like this page of random one line ideas. It's like ghosts, but with funny teeth, you know, like it's just <laughs> random stuff that I had an idea. And then it's fun to go through those and think about them. So when you are writing and you hit a spot where the easy option would be to take a break, to go away and not face it, but you want to power through, how can you keep going with your draft when you hit a slump? Oh, I've had moments. So I, I wrote also an ongoing comic series. Actually, the, the last the last issue just came out like two days ago, but it was eight issues. And sometimes you would have to write an issue within like one week and there was no extending this deadline and it was, I would reach a point where I'm like, I'm just not proceeding with this right now. And usually one thing that helped was I'd look at the line or whatever I was writing that was giving me so much difficulty and think, do I need to write this or can I write something else? And usually just by changing my approach to whatever scene or whatever sentence was bothering me and just sometimes even just taking it out and doing something completely different helped and yeah, that, that's been my biggest, cause like when I'm, I, I like to write at least 500 words a day on my book. And sometimes I just sit and minutes pass and I'm staring at the same sentence and realize this sentence is not working and I need to just write something else. Maybe this concept shouldn't be here. I don't typically edit myself too heavily when I'm doing a first draft, but just these little thoughts, these kind of editing related thoughts might help work through a tough spot. At least that's my experience. Well, I think as writers, sometimes we fall into the habit of telling ourselves that the only real progress is, you know, getting words on the page, getting that that word count up. But exactly like you said, there's nothing wrong with just slowing down, looking at different approaches. That's a huge part of writing too, is the brainstorming, the planning, the outline, and even the the changing outline steps as you go along. I feel like like nine times out of ten, whenever I get in like get stuck at a scene or I'm in a slump. It's because whatever I've got coming up, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like the scene's working. I'm not excited about, you know, where it's going. And a lot of times I can fix that by going and, and realizing that it's not working because I have an idea in my head about what needs to happen versus the ideas I get when I go back and I think about, okay, but what would the characters actually do in this situation? What would, you know, what's the follow through from the stakes? that have already been set up. What does the story want to have have neck have? What does the story want to have 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 happen versus <laughs> versus what do I want to have happen? And because what I figure when I get stuck it's because those two things have diverged and they've become different. But if I can make them the same, then all of a sudden the words flow a lot easier. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, I know Stephen King in on writing talks about how if he plans his books too much or at all that it becomes stale and he's not interested in writing it anymore because the discovery part of it is what he gets excited about whereas for me it's not like that at all <laughs> if I don't plan stuff out then I feel like I'm flailing around in the dark and I think that as far as coming to a slump in a draft for me I need to push through it and keep writing and then usually if I go back and look at the things that I wrote during the slump they're usually either not as bad as I thought that they were or they're like a thousand times worse than I thought they were, but I immediately have much better ideas about what should go there. And so having a story to shape is 100% better than having nothing on the page for me, because you can fix anything with editing. But that's definitely a personal, like, you find what works for you thing. The most extreme example of this for me was the Elatsaway, my book coming out, started as an adult book. And I, I wrote 20,000 words, and it was just, it was a struggle. I really wanted to write a plot 
that is similar to Lono Latsue, but it just wasn't working. And I realized it was because the character needed to be a teenager for the themes to really resonate the way they did. So scrap 20,000 words. And from there, it was just, it came so quickly. And that only, just that one change, it was a, it was a big change, but it made all the difference. I mean, just having the shape, even if you completely change your character and your setting and everything, you're like, I know where this is going. And so I'm ready. We talked about how there's more metrics of progress than just words on a page. But, you know, everyone, doesn't matter how talented you are, you're going to do a truckload of editing before anything you write actually gets published. You can't practice editing until you have words on a page to edit. So get the words on the page. And, and then practice. I like that. I've been working from home since like March. I've had a really hard time with wanting to keep writing because I work and I write on the same laptop. But one thing I found that really helps is if I switch mediums. So if I start writing by hand for a little bit or if I go to a different room, just like any change will switch that button in my brain. So maybe that's something that can help other people too. Kind of on a smaller level, I do the same thing on my computer, but I have, I, I keep on the same computer, but I have to close all the internet tabs that I had open for work. They just, they have to go away. Once they're gone, <laughs> then I can write. Do the mind switch. <laughs> Different hat. Oh my gosh. I tried. So I used to write in a library or a cafe. And obviously I haven't been able to do that for months and have suffered a bit in, in terms of my productivity. Me too. So I was like, it's I so have hard. this <laughs> VR headset. Um, I like to do this game called Beat Saver. So, so I have good. a VR headset. Yes. And I was like, I want to make, I want to write in VR with a cafe around me. And it worked great for the first 10 minutes. And then I got uh, motion sickness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. it, it, for people who don't get motion sickness, that's an option. <laughs> that's a really cool idea. Wow, that makes us, that makes me feel like we're living in a sci-fi world. And I really like that. <laughs> oh, yes. we've arrived. This is it. <laughs> So once you've slogged through the draft, you've gotten some editing under your belt, you have an agent, you have an editor with Publishing House or however you choose to publish, how do you approach persevering through an edit letter? And maybe someone can tag along here with a quick definition of what an editing letter is or what an edit letter is. Maybe Kristen should do that, Miss Mean I'm Editor. not a mean <laughs> editor. I'm just a truthful editor. <laughs> just kidding. I just- I hope I don't. I hope I haven't hurt anyone's feelings. So an edit letter is, in a short way of saying it, is basically once an editor has decided to acquire a book, they will go through and come up with some of the big problems that they see and sort of explain it to you in a letter. In school, you're literally taught to do it in a letter form. So I think that's how most people end up doing it with an email. Oh yeah, I've gotten some of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the author gets to read our feedback and some changes are non-negotiable and some changes are a lot more negotiable and it becomes a process of fixing the book and making it into the best book it can be, or at the very least the most publishable slash marketable book that we think it can be. Have at it, people who've received those. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I have to say, I went through the scientific peer review process before I went through the edit letter process and that really toughened me <laughs> up. So I'm like... Sure. Yeah, I don't take things personally as much as I think I would if I hadn't. You know, plankton plankton scientists could be very hard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like like you say, you can communicate. Some things can be flexible. And just with me, I think about the suggestions. I think about them from a place that's not attached to my, like, any hurt feelings or anything. And if there's something that I don't agree with or that I only partially agree with, I just talk to my editor and we have... We have a great back and forth. So our communication is really great. Um, the editor of Alatsue, Nick Thomas, 
yeah, it can. I, I understand it can be difficult sometimes. It's true. I actually, when I saw this question on our outline, it was like, I'm doing this to two different books right now. Oh. <laughs> I want to talk about it. But actually, I think that the thing that helps me the most is that most edit letters, most editors are nice enough to put it into categories. So you have like characters that need help or plot points that need help. And it's all put into nice little neat sections of things that I need to work on. And so usually what I do is I look at those sections and then I look at my book. And if I know my book really, really, really well, line by line, I can just in my head say, here's what I can do to fix this problem that she highlighted. And I'll write that out. And then on books that I have just crap drafted and I'm not really super familiar with, line by line, like some of the ones that I'm doing right now, I'll um, go do, <laughs> I'll go do a, like a chapter by chapter outline of my book, the way it ended up in the draft. And then on each chapter, I'll do like a little sub uh, bullet thing that says, this is how you need to change this chapter. And I just think through everything my editor asked me to change. And then I go through every chapter and say, in this chapter, fix this. In this chapter, fix this. In this chapter, fix this. And then I can check them off like it's a checklist. And it makes me feel like even if I only choose, if I only change like one thing one day, that I've done something. I feel like I'm progressing. And and approaching an edit letter can feel kind of like you're fighting a tentacled monster in a basement with no light sometimes. <laughs> like the book falls into pieces and you're like, it was a book. Why are you doing this to my book? It's not a book anymore. And I think that if I if I approach it from like that list sort of way where I start with the biggest problems where they're like, I, you have to cut this entire character. I'll go cut the entire character and all of the places the character appears before I start doing smaller stuff. So I do the biggest changes first and then I just work down. It's kind of one of those similar things, you know, no matter what you're writing, you're going to end up reworking the beginning a whole lot, but don't bother trying to get the beginning perfect when you start because you don't know what all you'll have to change until the whole book is done. Yeah. Like for example, I am not starting on book two in my series until I have finished all of the edits on book one because nobody needs to do that much rewriting. So we're about out of time for this portion of the podcast, but maybe we can end on one last wholesome motivational note. What to tell yourself to keep going when you face those dark nights of the soul as a writer and not the ones you're writing, your own dark nights of the soul. It's so difficult sometimes being a writer because there's a lot of roadblocks, rejections at every level, like getting an agent, getting an editor, you know. And really, one thing I recommend or that I tell myself is just keep writing, just believe in yourself. I know as, as cheesy as that sounds, I do think it's really important to believe in yourself and your writing and just to be strong when it's difficult. You um, actually pitched this topic, Darcy. Yeah. Is there anything you want to tell writers out there who are yeah. in, the, in the slush piles? I do. Um, drowning in the slush piles. <laughs> so when I when I got this this invitation to be on this podcast, actually my um uh, I'm sorry. My my father was a writing professor and I asked him what I should what I should talk about to help his students. It was one of the last pieces of advice he gave me, just to tell them to persevere. And that's something that, you know, Throughout his life, he really did persevere through a lot of very difficult things for the people that he loved. And I think he wanted his students and also just start writers starting this journey everywhere to keep that in mind. So it can be difficult, but you can do it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. 
Well, thank you for passing along what he learned so we can learn from it too. That's really neat. Yeah, I'm so happy to have this chance just to, to be with you talking about this subject. So thank you. Thank you for all your great insights. That was wonderful. If there are no final, no other final thoughts, we'll go ahead and move on to the next portion of our podcast where we critique an audience submission. A quick review of how we critique, we try to be non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to check out the text of the submission for yourself and see all of our notes, you can view it on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there as well. So a summary of this week's chapter. While bemoaning the fact that she can't join the older monster-hunting females of her quirky family, a young girl is suddenly called to an urgent family meeting. So, what are some things we liked about this chapter? i got to say, one thing I highlighted is when I read through this first chapter, there was this coffee shop that was like this little orange coffee shop, and it just reminded me of a pumpkin. So just the little details throughout this chapter one. Um, really painted this rich world that the character lived in. So that was that's my main highlight that I really did appreciate reading. I'll, I'll second that. I felt like there was a lot of seasonal atmosphere, especially the first few pages. That was it was just very engrossing. I uh, particularly love this detail about her family that all the men wear helmets and elbow pads twenty four seven. I'm assuming there's some sort of curse. I- I'm not really sure, but it's really funny, and I love. So they live in a funeral home, but the funeral home is protected by like gym mats, and all the pretty like ornate stuff is covered in blue pool noodles pool noodles and i just thought that was very very <laughs> funny i also love just the name grimsbane her last name is she's anna grimsbane it sets such a great tone for who she is i'm so intrigued by this premise and that mystery paired with um her fun voice i i know i would just really love to read the rest of this so i will look for it on shelves in a couple of years there's a there's a moment where Anna is thinking about what she would do if she lost her arm. And she's like, oh, well, I would just get a red prosthetic and then it would match my skateboard. And I just thought that was a really great nice <laughs> moment for her. It's fantastic character building. There's another fun moment when her dad calls for a family meeting. And so Anna's instantly thinking of all the bad things she's done and how she can explain her way out of this. But her brother at the same time has also gone pale because apparently there's a bunch of things he's done. I have to say one more thing is her her older sister, who is a jerk. She's so mean. So I mean, I don't like her as a person. But the description was like Wednesday Adams, who lifts weights and throws knives. And I was like, oh, I love this character already. I mean, I don't like her, but I like her. Okay, well, let's move on to things that might need a second look. Darcy, what did you think? So the biggest issue with me is the the driving motivation throughout the first chapter. The main character, Anna, she really wants to be a hunter, which, I mean, that's a cool, that's a cool job, you know. But I didn't understand why I should sympathize with her because the issue was she was not old enough to be a hunter. She'd have to wait until high school. And, you know, I could see why it'd be cool, but also it's almost like a book about a middle school character who wants to drive before they're in high school. So I felt like there needed to be something just to really draw us in to her plight. Maybe she is jealous because her big sister was allowed to be a hunter young and she isn't. So that would add this element of injustice. You know, it's not fair. Or maybe she really wants to be a hunter because it's deeply personal, like, somebody dies and she wants to be a hunter now because she can't wait three years. But as it is, it just wasn't quite compelling enough for me to really be rooting for her, like be the youngest hunter ever, you know? I'm not sure if that's just me or if that's something other people felt. Well, I think that you're right. Because I mean, especially since like issues of things being fair is such a great middle grade 
conflict, like, because I have a 10 year old and believe me, that is what he's conflicted yeah. <laughs> about all the time. And so, but I, I do think that it is along those lines where if it's just somebody who's annoyed, they can't, like you said, drive before their age. It, it doesn't feel like the kind of story. I mean, unless she's out fighting monsters by herself and has uh. already proved herself or like whatever else. So I, I agree. Yeah, I think it ties back into the question of like, why is the story starting today rather than any other day? Like presumably their family has a, had other meetings, but this is the meeting that matters. So I would agree with everything you said, Darcy and you, Caitlin. Kind of on a similar note, so we have that she's not old enough as, like, the block to what she wants, which is to be a hunter. We don't get that information until about page five. Before then, there's 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 no conflict in the story. I, I really love the descriptions. Like, we've all loved the, the moments where we've gotten to see the town and the voice, but it actually feels a little bit like... One of those classic first chapter, the author is trying to string us along by not giving us information instead of inviting us into the concept, which is awesome. Because, I mean, if you start with the first line, like, I'm sorry, I'm being prescriptive already. But like, <laughs> if the first line is, she wanted to be a witch, and or not a witch, she wanted to be a witch hunter, no one would let her. I mean, that's much more interesting than she walked into a coffee shop and they kind of sort of talked around her wanting to be a hunter. You know, like it's, uh, the actual concept is awesome. So start with that. Yeah. One thing that I think might need mentioning is so I completely love the concept of Anna's family being like monster hunters um sort of like a Buffy the vampire slayer family um but I was a little surprised that the things when they're talking about the things that they hunt they mention burning witches and my adult gut punch reaction was that that's like a really bad thing and I was wondering if witches are different in this world it just seemed really dark given how silly the beginning of this is so if witches are different and not just like people minding their own business in this world, I think I would have liked to have that lampshaded uh, in some way. <laughs> well, I mean, even if they're not, like even if they're awful and evil and terrible, burning witches is kind of a big deal for a middle grade book. I mean, that's that's pretty violent. When usually in middle grade, violence happens off screen that's the wrong word off page you don't see it directly a lot of time. i mean there are some instances where there's violence but usually it's it's tempered by hokey silly stuff and this was just like we're burning witches and it's very abrupt there's a difference between like throwing salt at a ghost and it screams and vanishes between tying a woman to a stake yeah. and watching them burn to death over a which i mean you minutes. can get away with a lot in middle grade i mean technically <laughs> all of the um lockwood and co books are middle no, grade. they are I not let my children read them when they're young they are they're technically middle grade oh, scary. very scary there's lots of killing ghosts in those but they're it's not the same as a person so i would so. say this is prescriptive too but it's all in how you sell it so right now in our minds our version of which is oh uh, you know an, an herbalist or some woman innocently being burned, which is terrible. But if, if, for instance, this witch wasn't a human, but it was like the monstrous child of a spider and a bat under a full moon who only <laughs> eats babies and they're super dangerous. And when you put like a spark on them, they go up and then they're gone. That's a little different. So I'm with Kristen on this one, though. I think I'd, I'd like to get hints of, of that if that is the case earlier on. There's, there's also the additional complication that in the real world, witch is an excuse label that people in power use to marginalize others so that they can, you know, mess with them even more. So it's also why witch is just kind of like a questionable. There was another term that I did not know. I did not know what a Wendigo was, but apparently we're, we have problems with this. Tell us more. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I read that and it, it was just a, a one line throwing a tomahawk at a Wendigo. And I'm not sure how a tomahawk would kill a Wendigo, aside from them both being in indigenous terms. So I, 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 don't, I don't know. I would look into maybe changing that to <laughs> something a little less stereotypical. Okay, awesome. To this author, thank you for submitting. I think we all enjoyed reading your work. And Darcy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We loved having you. Oh, thank you so much. And oh, I did want to thank um, the, the the author who submitted that first chapter for being so brave, because it, it's difficult to have your work critiqued. Amen. Um, but thank you for having me. <laughs> I, I'm so I'm so like proud and in awe of everybody who submits to the Honestly, podcast. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> really, really good submissions. Yeah. Thank you. Um, listeners, be sure to look out for Darcy's book coming August 25th, A Lats Away. Thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens and Alan Sangster, who's our sound designer. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. And if you love us an extra, extra special bit, be sure to check us out on Patreon. <laughs> I always argue with my husband about <laughs> Okay, we're going that. with Patreon. Thank you, thank you. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>